0: Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton is going to make some big changes to some of its major streets. A tiny cabin community may be closer to reality in Hamilton. Violence against female health care workers is sadly on the rise. Will Patrick Brown find a way back into the conservative leadership race? Bank of Canada is getting ready to increase interest rates again. And this week's summer cruising series focuses on the RBG. The Good Morning Hamilton Podcast starts now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast on 900 CHML. We just really need to design
2: out the conflict. It sounds really simple, but it's become very complicated because so many people have politicized some of these very small measures no rights on red no narrowing down streets things
0: like this that we already know that works we just have to push these through that is road safety advocate tom flood yesterday on good morning hamilton on 900 chml welcome back to the show rick samprin with you Uh, hamilton counselors finally had a chance to look over and uh, debate the city's proposed complete streets design manual Uh, One of the co-authors of that manual joins us now. His name is Brian Hollingworth. He's the Director of Transportation Planning and Parking. Brian, good morning. Welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning. How are you? Not too bad. Yourself? Great. So we have a manual in place. Um, What are motorists going to see in the next, let's say, six months?
3: Well, uh, We're very pleased that the the manual was approved yesterday at Public Works Committee. It's it's called the Complete Streets Design Standard, and I'll just take a moment to explain kind of what a complete street is. Uh, essentially, shortly, it's about designing for the most vulnerable users, for pedestrians, for cyclists, for persons with mobility challenges, children, and we kind of explain it. Um, traditionally, we used to d- take the center line and figure out how many uh, how many lanes were required for cars, and, and that was the approach. We're now looking at it more from a, an outside-in approach and looking at what is needed for those uh, vulnerable users and, and balancing that with traffic. So, you know, we're already um, implementing some of these concepts, um, some of the cycling lanes that you've seen in the city of Hamilton, uh, some narrower roads, uh, trying to achieve slower speeds, all this stuff which contributes to a, a better environment for all road users.
0: One of the measures that's going to be uh, rather immediate is the reduction of lanes on Main Street down to four lanes. Does that mean we have just a little more room between each vehicle?
3: Yes, for sure. Um, And I think um, pretty much most people can agree that uh, Main Street is probably not a complete street, Um, It's very much a a car-focused street. So some of the things we're looking at is, again, to try and calm traffic a little bit provide a little bit more of a buffer between cars and pedestrians. Uh, You know, walking beside five lanes of traffic isn't exactly uh, comfortable, Uh, so adding some some friction, uh, some parked cars, um, slowing down traffic a little bit, all to achieve a little bit more of a complete street. Those those are the short-term measures. In the the medium term, uh, we're looking at a conversion of two-way again to um, enhance uh, the attractiveness of the street.
0: In this uh, complete streets design manual, there's also a call to uh, ban right-hand turns on red at many intersections. What are we looking at here?
3: Um, the objective of that is to kind of um, help drivers and pedestrians uh, get along. Um, the slower drivers are making uh, turns, uh, the better it is for pedestrians. You know, some of the things that that are included in the complete streets guidelines. Uh, not necessarily like the right turn on red, which is operational, but are tightening up corner radius. You know, if you're driving around a, a corner with a large radius, you're tending to go faster. Tighten that up a little bit, narrow down the, narrow down the intersection so pedestrians are crossing a shorter distance. And it, it really has not a lot of impact on traffic flow, but huge benefits for those vulnerable users.
0: Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900CHML is Brian Hollingworth. He's the Director of Transportation Planning and Parking and co-author of the Complete Streets Design Manual that was given a big green light yesterday at Hamilton City Hall. Um, Another tidbit of info from this manual is that the pedestrian signals and the signal timing is going to be altered as well. Yeah, that's not
3: directly from from the manual. Um, That's uh, an initiative that we're working on the side for, for Main Street. The manual is really intended at how we uh, plan and, and design streets. So it gets into things like uh, lane widths and, and how you make trade offs between cyclists, pedestrians, uh, vehicles. Um, you know, some of the features which make streets simply look better uh, street trees and all that. So uh, we're looking at uh, those types of changes as we move forward with the, the design of our
0: streets. We got a tweet from a listener. We only have about 90 seconds to chat about this. Uh, the listener said, every road that was one way and now is two way is much busier than before. Is there any stats on that?
3: Um, there is actually. <laughs> and uh, I, I would I would uh, say that busier than before is not such a bad thing. Um, you look at James Street North, which was converted to uh, two way uh, quite quite some time ago back in the late 2000s, um, actually, more traffic started using James Street, and it and it wasn't more congested. And uh, we attributed the fact that people actually want to go there. And uh, people may re- remember James Street from 20 years ago. It wasn't exactly an attractive street. Uh, now the businesses in the north end are thriving. Uh, it's got the arts, uh, arts culture. Um, it's it's really kind of a great complete street. So. Those are the types of successes we're trying to emulate uh, moving forward.
0: Yeah, let's hope that success story is replicated over and over and over again throughout the city. Brian, appreciate the time. Great uh, job on this manual, and we'll talk to you down the road.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Brian Hollingworth is the Director of Transportation Planning and Parking, co-author of the Complete Streets Design Manual that was passed at City Council yesterday.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: The Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters is going to appear at today's Emergency and Community Services Committee meeting at Hamilton City Hall. And two reports are going to be presented. Let's chat about that with our next guest. Tony D'Amato-Storz is the author of one of these reports and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Tony, how are you?
2: Hi, Rick. Thanks so much for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on. One of the reports that we're going to talk about is one that you were engaged with, and that was talking to people in the city who are looking for a place to stay and their thoughts on this idea of a tiny cabin community. What did you find?
2: You know, yeah, Rick. So I was really excited about this work because we got a chance to ask the people who are actually living the life every day in Hamilton whether this was something that they needed. And uh, we were really happy to see that, well, not happy, but we were uh, confirmed to see that 97.2% of the people who we spoke to said that they would be interested in one of these homes if it was available to them. And you don't see these numbers in this line of
0: work. So is that number going to be presented to council to say, listen, uh, uh, the overwhelming majority of people in this community want to see it. Can we get it done? And that is really the ultimate question. Can, Can we get it done?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's uh, it's going to be presented to council, sort of to say that you know there may be some disagreement in the council chambers about whether this needs to get done, and there may be some division in the neighborhoods about whether to welcome this community. But among the people who are actually you know, sleeping on the concrete and in and out of the shelter system, they know what they need. And it's up to us to see if we're going to listen to them.
0: The other part of today's presentation, will look at another report that looked at some of the successes, some of the challenges that other tiny cabin communities have realized in places like Canada and in some U.S. Uh, uh, cities as well. Um, What has or what's the evidence behind this being uh, successful and what are some of the red flags, so to speak, that we can avoid here?
2: Yeah, so that's uh, that's really a great a great question. And that other report was written by Bill Johnson, our secretary at the Hamilton Alliance. So he would he would have some better insight on that. But one of the great pieces of evidence that this is successful comes out of Kitchener and the fact that these models work often for folks that nothing else works for. These are people who, uh, for one re- reason or another, don't fit well within the shelter system. They need they need that independence and that autonomy of a tiny home, and this project works really well for them.
0: Uh, I would imagine the biggest stumbling block might be the nimbyism, right? Like, not in my neighborhood, but this somewhere else. What is the vision? Is it just to have one Big, tiny community uh, in the city somewhere, or are we going to have little spots here and there? So what
2: Hats is looking to do right now is to pilot this project and do it with 10 to 20 homes. You know, that's that's a number that's manageable where we can really see if this is something that's going to work and take off in Hamilton. Now, lots of folks will respond to that and say, well, there's so many people out living on the street. What's, what's 10 to 20 homes going to do to that overall number? And what my answer to that would be is, you know, it may not end homelessness in Hamilton, but it'll end homelessness for those 10 to 20 people, and that's a
4: really good start.
0: Tony D'Amato stortz is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Tony is with the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters, authored a report on those living rough in the city and how they want to see themselves in one of these tiny cabin communities. What will this... uh, proposed community offer these individuals and, and how long can they stay there for? Is there a time limit? Is there a, a rotation that'll be implemented? How's it going to work in that regard?
2: Yeah, so a lot, of the, a lot of that time limit stuff will have to be decided with our partners and with the residents once we, once we get going on this project. But one of the things that's really important and key to these tiny homes is we're not just taking people and parking them in a cabin and saying, okay, you're solved. What happens is when they get into the home, they also get hit with what we call wraparound services. These services are things like health care to deal with any chronic health issues they have, mental health and addiction support, employment counseling, you know, trying to find some, some shorter term employment that they can do to help get them back on their feet. So it's not just about taking people and putting them in a little cabin and saying, we're done. We're really trying to wrap them in support and give them every opportunity for success within this tight community.
0: What's the cost of this and and who pays for it?
2: Yeah, so uh, HATS is actively fundraising now. The cost of a bare cabin is something in the neighborhood of $6,000. And it really fluctuates with the price of lumber, which, as I'm sure you know, has been changing a lot. There's some other infrastructure costs, but those really change based on the site. But the individual units are very affordable for what you get.
0: Lastly, what are you hoping to hear from city councilors today?
2: We're hoping to hear from ECS today that they're, that they're behind this project, that they recognize that there is a housing crisis in Hamilton, there is a homelessness crisis in Hamilton, and that um, they're open to new and innovative solutions to help get people warm and safe come the winter.
0: Tony, good luck at today's committee meeting, and uh, we'll talk to you, I'm sure, sometime down the road about uh, a, uh, a, a tiny cabin community in this city.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Take good
0: care. That is Tony D'Amato-Stortz from the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Female health care workers are leaving the industry due to rising cases of violence. A new poll for CUPE back in May shows that 63% of respondents experienced physical violence at work. 53% reported an increase in violence targeting them or a coworker during the COVID-19 pandemic. 71% report that they are subjected to harassment or abuse because of their race or appearance. And 49% of all hospital workers experience sexual harassment. 36% experience sexual assault. Catherine Hoy is the president of the Ontario Nurses Association and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Catherine, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Disturbing numbers to say the least. Why are we seeing an increased level of violence, sexual harassment, sexual assault towards what is thousands of healthcare workers in our country?
5: Well, to be honest, violence isn't new. It uh, has been a serious problem for years and years. It has escalated due to the pandemic. Absolutely for sure.
0: Why is that? Do we know? Is it frustration on the part of the individuals being treated? They don't want to be there. Have we nailed down the reason?
5: Well, frustration is a big piece of it. I mean, we have critical staffing levels right now, uh, after the pandemic you know related to a whole bunch of reasons bill 124 the critical staffing shortage right now and a lot of people didn't go to the hospital when they should have during the pandemic because they were fearful of COVID, and now we're seeing record numbers in some of the hospitals we have half the staff Three, four times the number of patients that normally would be there so the long long wait times cause frustration and the other thing is hospitals are not set up really to protect their workers there's no system in place to ensure that weapons are not coming through the door and it is amazing to see what comes in through the door that puts our nurses and all the healthcare workers at
0: risk. You mentioned weapons, and the poll also showed that a large increase in the use of weapons like guns and knives against hospital staff. That is unbelievable.
5: Yes, I can think of a few shootings um, that we've had across the province, and recently we've had a nurse that's been stabbed and there was another healthcare worker stabbed. It's amazing. To think what comes through those doors guns, knives, machetes, believe it or not, wow. uh, credit card knives, uh, things. It, it's unbelievable, but it doesn't have to be a weapon. Nurses, healthcare workers, they are kicked, they're hit, they're punched, they're spit at, they're verbally assaulted each and every day.
0: Catherine Hoy is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Catherine is the president of the Ontario Nurses Association, and we're chatting about uh, the rise in violence against female health care workers uh, in this province, really across the country. Any numbers on how many female employees have had enough, have thrown up their arms and said, all right, that's it, I'm, I'm out of here?
5: Well, we're estimating around 30,000 registered nurses right now. And that is part and parcel of everything that's going on. Violence, Bill 124, uh, the critical staffing, the burnout. So we're around 30,000 nurses and we already were, this province Ontario had the worst RN to patient ratio. And now we're down another, 30,000 nurses, what does that do to our healthcare system?
0: Well, and what does that do to their mental health as well? I mean, if they're being kicked and punched and slapped and threatened and, uh, you know, stabbed at work, uh, that, that's got to be a huge strain on their mental health.
5: Oh, it is. That's where the burnout is coming through. Um, you know you you almost have to have eyes in the back of your head i mean you're running around trying to care for people because the staffing levels are so critical and then you're having to watch out for your own safety we have emerge rooms hospitals throughout this whole province that barely have any security can you imagine that i've said it many times when i've been interviewed i went for lunch to the cN tower and i had to go through a metal detector to have lunch but yet anyone can walk through a door of a hospital and no one seems to care what they have in their possession as far as weapons. We need to be safe. The Ministry of Labour should be ordering in mandatory security at all entrances. And you know it doesn't end just with hospital. We have home care nurses that go in. There's weapons violence in homes. So it is across health care. No one should be going into a home to provide care as a single person. There should always be two people, but that that doesn't exist in our healthcare system. It is so wrong.
0: Catherine, we have about a minute. There's been a renewed call to repeal Bill 124. What's the status of that? Do you think the government is going to finally act on that?
5: I'm keeping my fingers crossed that the government is going to act on it. We have to retain the nurses we have right now because I'm telling you, they are walking out the door every single day and we cannot afford as uh, Ontario, our communities to lose one more nurse. We're seeing emerge rooms closed across the province. People will die. People will die because there's not enough healthcare workers to take care of the patients nursing is not task oriented these are highly educated individuals and they deserve respect they are there for our community and we need our government to step up and to be there for us
0: it's a very scary situation catherine thank you for shining a spotlight on it and thank you for your time this morning
5: Anytime. Thank you and have a great day.
0: You too. Catherine Hoy, presidents of the Ontario Nurses Association.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from nine hundred CHML.
0: I know that to lead Canada, Prime Minister has to speak to every Canadian every Canadian. You need a Prime Minister that hears your voice. And that's me. And the conservative party that I am fighting for is one that is principled and inclusive. Well, that was back in March of this year as Patrick Brown entered the conservative leadership race. Today, he finds himself out of the federal conservative leadership race after he was disqualified over financing allegations in regards to the Elections Act. So... Where does the Conservative Party go now? Tim Abrey is a doctoral candidate in the Department of Political Science at Queen's University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Tim, good morning. How are you?
6: I'm doing all right. Good
0: morning. What does Patrick Brown's disqualification mean for this leadership
6: race? (laughs) <laughs> wow. It's, uh, it's yet another complicated turn in this whole affair. It seems that the Conservative Party has a tough time these days getting through one of these things without some kind of major controversy coming up. Uh, and I think it's it's probably one of the worst things that could happen, particularly at this stage of the contest. Um, it draws into question the integrity of the process. It draws, uh, it, it highlights a lot of questions that people are going to have about the manner in which this thing has been conducted. Uh, and for some people, no doubt, it's going to draw into question the results of the campaign. So it's it's probably, uh, to put it just plainly, it's terrible news for the party.
0: Will Brown supporters, or most of them, latch on to Jean chadet or are they just going to say, you know what, I'm not going to vote at all? What's your gut telling you?
6: Yeah, it's really complicated, again, because we really honestly don't know how many people have signed up specifically to support each candidate. Uh, they, of course, publish their own numbers. They are almost always, without fail, uh, inflated. Um, We do know there's about 671,000 people who are registered with the party who would be eligible to vote. But if you add up all the totals that the candidates themselves have provided, that would put you far in excess of that number. Um, So, But the general rule of thumb is that about half of the people uh, that candidates sign up end up voting in leadership contests. And so uh, it's really anybody's guess what those people will do who signed up specifically to support Patrick Brown. Um, It's very difficult to know what their intentions will be after they no longer have access to their candidate. But even that's complicated because his name is still going to be on the ballot and it's a ranked balloting system. So they're going to be selecting more than just their first choice candidate, or at least hopefully they'll be choosing most uh, more than just their first choice. So people who are unaware that he's no longer available, even though he's still on the ballot, um, may only cast a vote for him. So it's really tough to know. Hmm. But in terms of alignment, uh, I think you're probably going to get a fairly even split for the people who who support him. I'd be surprised if too many of them end up in Pogliev's camp. Um, but you may see a, a smattering of them, of them across the other candidates. But as you point out, particularly uh, into Jean Charest's camp, possibly, possibly into Scott Ageson's camp. Um, but again, tough to know, tough to read minds and know exactly where people are going to go after their their favorite candidate is gone.
0: Tim, do you think this could lead to more transparency or some kind of big change in in future leadership
6: races? It's really tough to know. I think the thing that that uh, that Canadians should be aware of is that political parties have no official standing in our system. They're a convenience more than anything. They're a way of collecting like-minded people into a, a collective so that they can make decisions about uh, where they want to see the, the country go, what kinds of policies they want to see implemented. But they are essentially private clubs. So they get to set their own general rules about how they conduct themselves. They get to to talk about uh, their internal workings uh, as much or as little as they care to. And I think that that kind of opacity is really something that they're going to need to re-examine if they hope to increase people's trust in the system, if they hope to uh, have people trust that the the whole process is thoroughly above board and democratic. Uh, And I think that that is essential to our system for people to know uh, that the processes that parties are using are in line with democratic principles. And right now, it's really tough to make that claim. Um, it has, the allegations themselves have been teased out over several days, and there isn't a great deal of certainty about precisely what's a part of them. There's lots of rumor, there's lots of confirmed reports, but there's no official statement from the party about precisely what it is that that caused Brown to be kicked out. And I think that's a serious, serious problem for the party.
0: Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Tim Abrey. He's a doctoral candidate. Candidate in the Department of Political Science at Queen's University as we talk about Patrick Brown's disqualification from the Federal Conservative leadership race. It sounds like Brown is going to appeal this disqualification. He has spoken out about it, saying, Hey, you know, show me the evidence. What are the chances he gets reinstated?
6: I'd say they're slim. Uh the, the body that looks at these things, the LAOC, this is the leadership organizing committee of the, the Conservative Party, has final say on these things. And it has representation from across the country, from every province and territory across the country. Uh, so there's no question that this decision is not a light one. It's not something they would do casually. They know that it's not going to make the party look good. So I think I think we have to take at face value that um, at least LAOC is taking the uh the allegation seriously, um, so I think it's very unlikely that you'll see this happen quickly enough uh, to have him reinstated. Uh, this this is unfortunate for Brown, but again, it's one of the problems of having uh, a major chunk of our political system run by essentially a private club.
0: I think the vote at the committee stage was ten to six to boot him out, which you know shows me that there's some gray area here, perhaps.
6: Yeah, I think I think that probably that has to do with people wanting, uh, more with process, people wanting to wait to find out what Elections Canada has to say about this. I think, you know, if we take at face value the allegation that is allegedly at the, the heart of all of this, the idea that a campaign worker was being paid by a private corporation, which would be against Elections Canada's rules. Um, if we take that at face value, it is a serious allegation. But the problem is that that line has been gray for a really long time. And so there would be people on the committee who know that, you know, pretty much everybody who volunteers on, uh, on campaigns, who works with parties has a day job. Uh, a lot of them are lawyers, a lot of them work for lobbying firms. And so the question of when the clock stops on your day job and when the clock starts on your volunteer job with a leadership candidate can get a little bit fuzzy at times. Um, And so this is an allegation that's routinely thrown around, but it's quite something to have it uh, land as a really solid uh, smack to the jaw that says, no, 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 we've got a smoking gun document that says this person was, was being paid, which seems honestly, to be quite something that if that's the case, then it's just a a flagrant gross violation. So I think that, yes, there's probably quite a few people who would like to see this process play out before he got booted off the ballot. Um, But again, the club makes its own rules. They voted uh, and made a decision to get him out now. um, And we'll see how that plays out for them.
0: Oh, It seems to be a lot of drama. One uh, party such as the Conservatives picks a new leader, at least in in, uh, in terms of recent memory, that is for sure. Tim, really appreciate your time today. Great chat. Anytime. time. As Tim Abre, he's a doctoral candidate in the Department of Political Science at Queen's University as we break down the disqualification of one Patrick Brown.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Another interest rate hike is expected next week from the Bank of Canada. Many economists say it will probably be a three-quarter point spike. So if you have a variable mortgage rate... Yeah, that's going to go up if you have a fixed mortgage rate and it's coming up for renewal. The sticker shock is real. Robert Clancy is a mortgage agent at SafeBridge Financial and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Robert, good morning. Welcome to the show.
4: Good morning,
0: Nick. How are you? I'm great. Uh, we, are, we are seeing a, a report from CMHC that says Canadians flocked to variable rate mortgages in the months before the Bank of Canada began rapidly hiking interest rates this year, uh, driving their share of the market above 50%. Have you seen the same activity at SafeBridge Financial, more and more people going to the variable rate mortgages?
4: Yes, no, for definite. I, I would say that's been a trend. Uh, for the last, you know, three to four years, um, you know, variable rate offers a lot of flexibility for clients. Uh, number one, yes, there's there's always that you know possibility of you know when the bank account they do decide to, to move rates that you know your rate will move with it and it means your payment will change. But up until you know the recent rate hikes we had this year, the variable rate was pretty much prime rate was pretty much flat. So there was a you know five years there of where people's you know. Pay, payments weren't changing, and the actual discounts on that uh, variable rate were, were increasing. Um, so yeah, we we've seen that trend continuously. You know, as advisors, you know, if people were asking for advice, we we would always sort of lean towards the variable because I, you know, it still gives you an option to lock into a fixed at any time. And you know, in a market where you know, although a lot of people tend to take five year mortgage rates uh, terms, Rick, you know, a lot of the time I'd say. of people within five years break the mortgage. And by being in a variable product, you're allowed to do that with as little as three months' interest. When you're locked into a fixed-rate product, especially through one of the scheduled banks, um, the penalties can be a lot more expensive. Mm -hmm. So that's where, you know, more and more people were... were, And once you understand the product we're leading towards a variable rate, um, but, you know, times are changing now and um, with, with these rate increases, so a lot of people are starting to sort of rethink that. But uh, the challenge is the fixed rates have gotten so expensive um, that the verbal rate, although it's a trending upwards rate, still makes sense for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I would have thought, at least at the onset when we heard that, yeah, you know what, the Bank of Canada wants to rein in some inflation, we're expecting a a series or a long schedule of rate hikes. I would have thought that, you know, from a cost certainty perspective, because we know that home prices have gone way up, from a cost certainty perspective, I would have thought the more Canadians would have opted to lock in at a fixed rate, even though it was a little higher, they would at least have that cost certainty over the range of the Bank of Canada's interest rate announcements. Does that kinda of makes sense or are we just not seeing that?
4: Well it, no I suppose right now um if if you know if fixed rates were probably a lot less than what because the average fixed rate now, Rick is over five percent. And you know, you can still if you're you know, if you're purchasing a property, say, under a million dollars and, and its high ratio I means it's still CMC insured, you're still getting a variable mortgage for as low as, you know, two point seven, two point eight. So that's a huge spread between the two. Uh, if it's a conventional mortgage, in other words, you're refinancing, or, or you're, you know, you're purchasing a property for a million dollars and up, you're still looking at a spread of about a rate of still about three point one, three point two. So if you compare that to where the fixed rates are, there's still nearly a two percent uh, spread. So you know, um, right now, a lot of you know Canadians are looking at that spread and say, well, why would I pay, you know a rate of 5.2 when when I don't have to right now. And even if the Bank of Canada do increase rates, which most likely they will this month, you know, everybody's betting on you said that's maybe three quarters of a point. You know, for, for it to get to two more points, if that happens, I don't think it'll go that high. But even if it did, it could take another year or two. So why be locking into that payment now when I don't have to? Mm-hmm.
0: Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900CHML is Robert Clancy, mortgage agent with SafeBridge Financial. You can check them out online at safebridgefinancial.com. What's your advice for people with variable mortgages and those who are coming out of a fixed-rate mortgage?
4: But in a variable mortgage and I'm a, yes I've, I've been getting hundreds of emails and questions uh you know it's a it's a time in the market when there's a lot of concern my advice is you just got to ride it out, and um, you know being in a variable mortgage, like for example, we were seeing variable mortgages there Rick you know at the you know 12 the pandemic is within the one percent range, and um, you know now they're sort of still in the two percent range. It's extremely cheap money and, and that's an anomaly, and, and it doesn't happen so even when it was putting clients into these mortgages, like, be aware that we're in a very you know, one-off type of interest rate market, so you know take advantage of that, increase your payments if you can accept because do remember eventually it will start to turn. And now we're at that phase where we're probably starting to hit the variable rate where we were up the pre pandemic rate. So I just say to clients, you just have to, you know, just write it out. You know, you know, you qualify for this mortgage. You do have the room. You do have the cash flow because you've got to remember that when, you know, when you're qualifying for a mortgage, Rick, um, today on a variable rate, you're still being qualified at five and a quarter even you know, even if your rate was in the low twos or one percent say a year ago, you are still qualifying at five and a quarter. So in theory, you know, you've got the income to support a mortgage that high. But, you know, it's not nice to see more and more of your surplus cash go towards that. But it's just a period of time that you do have to write out because I do believe that once we get maybe another twelve months to eighteen months along, you know, the effects of these increases will start to hit the economy if they already haven't so. And I think, you know, in a, it's inevitable that we're going to hit a recession. And then when we do go into recession, you know, things tend to flatten out and actually rates then eventually will start to come down again as the government and then start to kickstart the economy all over again. So, you know, it's a cycle that does happen every five to 10 years, whether it's caused by a world crisis or just general economic activity. But you just have to be able to, you know, take a year or two of, of raising rates because, you know, those are the three years where you're war in a much lower interest rate. Overall, it still offers greater benefit to you.
0: Great advice from Robert Clancy, mortgage agent, SafeBridge Financial. Robert, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us.
4: No problem, Rick. Take care. Thanks for having me.
0: All the Uh, best. That is Robert Clancy from SafeBridge Financial, online, safebridgefinancial.com. There is some news out from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. They did a recent study. About the likelihood of a recession, it shows that the Bank of Canada's strategy of rapidly increasing its key interest rate in an effort to tackle skyrocketing inflation is likely to trigger a recession. And it showed that in the last 60 years, the central bank has, in three cases, managed a 5.7% reduction in the inflation rate by quickly raising interest rates, which is basically what we're seeing now. In each of those cases, it was followed by a recession. And the CCPA says the next recession could include, and again, this is just a projection, could include 850,000 job losses across the country. Hopefully, we can avoid that or at least mitigate that number.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Summer cruising series time each and every week throughout the summer. We're going to shine a spotlight on a cool event that is happening in our community. Uh, we're going to focus on SuperCrawl come September, uh, the Winona Peach Festival in a couple months' time, Hamilton Fringe Festival coming up as well. Today, we are shining a spotlight on the Royal Botanical Gardens because it has a number of extremely uh, informative and entertaining events that you can get involved in, and today... Uh, The augmented reality experience called Seeing the Invisible is what we're going to be talking about. Jennifer Dick is the Manager of Interpretation at Royal Botanical Gardens and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jennifer, good morning. How are you?
7: Good morning. I'm doing well today. How are you? I'm good.
0: This is described as an immersive augmented reality experience. What will visitors experience?
7: Well, if you come on your own and you don't have a device, it will just be the beautiful gardens. But if you have your own device and you add the app for the Sini Invisible uh, Art exhibit, then in certain parts of the garden, you'll be able to see some pretty amazing sculptures and artwork from different artists from around the world.
0: Wow. So uh, do people have to download the RBG app? Is that what they have to do?
7: Uh, It's an app for the exhibit itself. And so it's an experience that was developed by the Jerusalem Botanical Garden. So one of the really cool things about it is that we're co-hosting this art exhibit with 12 other botanical gardens around the world at the same time, which is really neat.
0: Wow. So this is really treating a number of individuals in different places of the world or the country uh, um, on this same exhibit.
7: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so lots of people. So you can have the same art pieces in different botanical gardens around the world. We're the only Canadian site. So it's pretty unique if uh, if you want to experience it at RBG. And all of the pieces are in the amazing gardens and the the locations are chosen to highlight the pieces themselves. And so you can interact with them as well. There's audio components to some of them, some of them you walk into, Uh, you can explore them from three dimensions. So it's really, really neat experience.
0: Sounds like fun for the whole family.
7: Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. Lots of the kids love it. Uh, art lovers love it. Tech geeks love it. So it's uh, <laughs> it's a lot of fun.
0: I, I understand that seeing the invisible is also going to be offered after dark. How is that going to work?
7: Yeah, so we have uh, a series of after-hours events. So each week we have something different, and so you can come and enjoy uh, music or film or. Um, We also have uh, culinary arts and and tours from our friends at the Art Gallery of Hamilton as well. So something different each week and all that information is available on our website, which is rbg.ca.
0: Jennifer Dick is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jennifer is the manager of interpretation at the RBG. Speaking of after dark, RBG also having uh, some movie nights during the summer. What's coming up?
7: Yeah, so at the end of the month, we have Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and then next month as well, we have uh, Encanto. So those are family-friendly evenings uh, and a nice way to experience the gardens in the evening.
0: Well, you had me at Star Wars. (laughs) Uh, And many workshops are being offered throughout the summer, too
7: hmm. Yeah. So, as again, as part of this after hours series, we have watercolor paint alongs. We also have quite a number of other um, courses and classes that we offer at RBG year round. So it's always good to check our website to see if you want to take some art classes or yoga or some some other fun things like birding and um, little bit for everyone.
0: You mentioned the seeing the invisible augmented reality experience is, is only taking place here in Canada at the RBG. Was there competition to get this exhibit?
7: Uh, I think we were the only Canadian site interested at the time. Um, but yeah, there was quite a number of gardens interested. And um, there's several in the US and uh, a number in the UK as well. So a little bit everywhere.
0: If someone's planning out their day to take in this exhibit, how much time should they give them give themselves to enjoy it at a nice leisurely pace?
7: Mm-hmm. For the exhibit itself, I would say an hour. But if you also want to take in the um the gardens themselves i would give yourself another hour at least so i I would plan to spend at least a couple of hours um and of course it's at your own pace so you can do some of the pieces all of the pieces uh whatever you would like whatever catches your fancy while you're there
0: sounds pretty cool jennifer really appreciate the time today best of luck with the seeing the invisible ar experience
7: Thank you so much.
0: That's Jennifer Dick, Manager of Interpretation at the Royal Botanical Gardens. You can get all the information you need online at rbg.ca. Combining art with nature. It is kind of cool.
1: Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
0: The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.